0: The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Good to have you here today. Just in case there's anyone here uh, that doesn't know me, my name is Pastor Mick. I'm Pastor of Discipleship here at Broadway Church. Pastor Darren has just completed a walk through uh, the book of Revelation. And so now today is the first uh, Sunday of our summer series. Um, that we're calling um, the Jesus Creed, and I'll explain that in just a moment. And so for the month of July and August, we're sort of doing this special feature. And what we're talking about this summer is important. There's a way in which what we're doing this summer is sort of cultivating the ground for a sermon series that Darren is preaching this fall, but also for Uh, a couple of other ministry initiatives that will be happening in the uh, coming year and so um, at the end of the day um, I'm hoping that uh, this will kinda you know ping on your radar screen and that you'll start thinking about this maybe in a way and uh, at a depth that you haven't thought about this before and we hope that this will kinda be a first step in kinda uh, coming with us on on this journey. Um, We are Loosely following uh, this summer, um, a book by Scott McKnight called The Jesus Creed. And uh, the Jesus Creed, the byline is loving God, loving others. And that's what we're going to be unpacking this morning. Just what is this all about? If anybody's interested for some summer reading, like you're looking for something to read in the beach and you don't want to read a pot boiler, but something that will actually feed your soul. Uh, We've got copies of the Jesus Creed in our bookstore, and we've discounted them to $10 each. So if you're interested in following along, just know that the Jesus Creed book is available. Um, The way the Jesus Creed will unfold, this class will unfold. It's a five-part class. Uh, I'm teaching today. Uh, Ross Allen, one of the members of our board, is going to be teaching next week. Um, Chris Kong will be uh, doing two weeks from now and then I'll be back to do the ones in August. So just to kind of give you some idea and along the way we've got communion and we've got pancake breakfast and it's all on the poster, you'll see them in various places. Um, So I think it's going to be a well worthwhile summer and I hope that you'll kind of come along uh, with us. Uh, I'd encourage you to pick up a set of notes, you just might kind of want to keep track of the direction that we're going and uh, give it some thought and consideration, just in your own uh, personal time in between uh, weeks. So, the mission of Broadway Church is to produce fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We all pretty much know that by heart. All of our ministries here at Broadway have this one aim, to help people take the next step on their journey towards being centered in Christ. That's kind of what we're all about. We're trying to help people move towards being centered in Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, Pastor Darren unpacked what he called the four emojis. And the four emojis, if you remember them, um, uh, are designed to help us understand, well, What's the end product? What are we shooting towards when you are centered in Christ? What does that look like? What is it that we are kind of moving towards? What are we trying to grow spiritually into? And so he kind of unfolded it this way, that somebody who is centered in Christ believes what Jesus believed, lives like Jesus lived, loves like Jesus loved, and teaches what Jesus taught. So let me just kind of impact those quickly with just a word of explanation, and we'll return to these over the next few weeks and months, I'm sure. Believing what Jesus believes means this, that we courageously embrace a biblical worldview, okay? We courageously embrace a biblical worldview. Jesus absolutely rested on the veracity and the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. His teaching was based on it. Uh, It was a part of his own life and spirituality. And almost all of his teaching was moving forward, things that God introduced in the Old Testament and reinterpreting for God's new covenant people, that's you and me. So Jesus absolutely accepted the Old Testament as his Bible, and uh, he advocated a thoroughly biblical worldview, who God is, who we are, what's going on in the world, what has God done about it, what does that mean for the way we live our lives every day? Living like Jesus lives means that we actively demonstrate a spirit-led life. Okay, We actively demonstrate a spirit-led life. When you know Jesus Christ is Lord, the Bible tells us, that the holy spirit takes residence in your heart and he is there to help you grow into Christ-likeness. that's his whole task in your life to make the word of god clear and to give you direction for your life and to lead you in the direction that he wants you to go so that you can make the best investment of the stewardship of this one life that you and i each have and so Living like Jesus lived is kind of following in his footsteps, actively demonstrating a spiritual-led life. The one human being that we have uh, evidence for who perfectly lived a spiritual-led life is Jesus Christ himself. And so he gives us some sense of what are we moving towards. We're moving towards living the way that he lived. Loving like Jesus loved. There's a lot more that can be said on all of these, but I just kind of want to give you a shorthand to kind of give you a placeholder as we kind of think about this in the future. Loving like Jesus loved, and that's kind of where we're going to be parking for this summer, is selflessly love God in our neighbor. You probably saw that one coming. Some of you might have already filled it in even before I got it. Selflessly, that's the key word, loving God and neighbor. I was talking to someone in my small group at Porco Quitlam last week, and we were sort of talking about what does this mean to love our neighbor, uh, especially if they're somebody who is antagonistic. So, you know, it's not a family, it's not a friend, it's a foe. The Bible says we should love our enemies. And, uh, and she said, well, I think, and I thought this was brilliant. She said, I think that if, if I pray for my enemy, then I would pray for them everything I would pray for myself. I thought that's incredibly insightful. When you pray for your enemies, that's what you're doing. If you love them the way the Bible talks about it, then you are praying for them what you would pray for yourself. You're looking for their best interest. This is, you're hoping that God will look out for your best interest. But we'll unpack that as time comes by. And then teaching what Jesus taught. Here's what goes in the blank. Intentionally communicate Jesus' message. Intentionally communicate Jesus' message. And so, we don't have a message of our own. We're just telling the same story that Jesus told, okay? As followers of Jesus Christ, that's our story. That's our message. That's what we have to share. What has been passed on to us, we pass it on to others. And so, we want to intentionally communicate Jesus' message, and that is bound up, as Paul says, in this word of the gospel. Uh, We won't unpack that today, but you get the idea. So, believing what Jesus believed, living like Jesus lived, loving like Jesus loved, teaching what Jesus taught, the higher, you know, the higher our temperature in each one of these areas, the more like Jesus we're becoming, the more Christ-centered we are becoming. Well, if we're going to be these kinds of followers, then we need to pay close attention to what Jesus thought, what he taught, and how he lived. We need to be students of Jesus. In fact, we have four Gospels designed to help us do just that, to kind of walk around at Jesus' heel, as it were, and kind of see what he does and hear what he says and see how he coaches those that kind of follow along with him. Jesus had an awful lot to say about what it means to be his follower. And one of the key aspects is bound up in the following verses for John's Gospel. And John is probably the big champion of this concept of the Jesus Creed, loving God, loving others. So I've just kind of included a couple of those verses. And on your notes, um, please feel free, whenever you come to a scripture verse, circle any word that jumps out at you. Underline any uh, passage that really gets your attention. Like, make this your own. Let the Holy Spirit use this Um, outline to kind of help spur your further thinking about our subject today. So here's what Jesus said now um, uh, in the Gospel of John. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he or she, if you allow me to add that, he or she, that's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you see where Jesus is going with this? We often think about love as being sort of an emotional sort of reaction. You know, how can I love my neighbor whose dog poops in my yard? Like, how do I, I just don't have warm fuzzies about that. Well, that's not what agape love is all about. It's not about warm fuzzies. It's about a decision you make to consider your neighbor's interest as important as your own, to pray for them what you would pray for themselves, to seek their best interest, even if they're not thinking your best interest. It really is a selfless giving of love in the same way that Jesus modeled for us when he went to the cross on our behalf. And so Jesus says, okay, listen, what does it mean to be my follower? Well, I'm going to help you out here. I'm going to give you some clues. He who has my commandments and keeps them That's the person who's a lover of God. And so he acquaints love with action. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who's actually loving me. And he who loves me, here's the promise, you'll be loved by my Father, and I will love you, and I'll make myself known to you. I will manifest myself. I will reveal myself to you in the day-to-day business of your life. Pretty dramatic promises, don't you think? In John 15, 9, and 10, Jesus puts it this way. Has the Father has loved me, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, right? Has the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you see the connection? Whatever it means to follow Jesus, it means, and here's what goes in the blanks, it means to obey his commands. Whatever it means to follow Jesus, it means to obey his commands. And this is what Jesus prioritizes and what we've come to know as the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 21. And, of course, some of you have memorized it, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples or to make followers of Jesus, okay? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that's what we did a couple of weeks ago, 58 baptisms just a couple of Sundays ago, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and note this next line, teaching them to, open, open, book, open book test here, teaching them to, obey, obey. All I've commanded you. Do you see the connection here? Jesus is pretty consistent on this. If we love God, we obey his commandments. In fact, that is our whole mission as God's people, is to um, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, letting them identify publicly as belonging to Jesus, and then teaching them to obey all the things that Jesus commanded. So I want to share that only because what we're going to spend the rest of our time today talking about is the Great Commandment. I just read the Great Commission. We're now going to talk about the Great Commandment. And that's what we're we're unfolding over the rest of the summer. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about it and why it came together the way it did in Jesus' teaching. And then we're going to unpack it over the summer. What does it look like? Uh, Ross next week is going to talk about what does this love for God and others look like in shoe leather? And and then um, uh, Chris is going to come and talk about why is this love such a fundamental part of the DNA of God's people? And, uh, And then we're going to talk about what does it mean to actually show love to God? How do we actually pull that off? So that's kind of the direction we're going in this series. Now you might be asking yourself this question, and that is, why the Jesus creed? That's not a word that we use all along. And sometimes when we use the word creed, it's not a good word. You know We consider somebody who is creedal to be fundamental, rigid, uh, close-minded. Um, you know, sometimes creed doesn't have... The same kind of cachet for us that it did for other people who followed Jesus in the years past. But let me unpack or demystify this word before we proceed. The word creed just simply comes from the Latin word credo, which means... Anybody want to take a guess what the word credo means? What do you think? Credibility, credo, take a guess. I believe. Yeah. The word creed is developed from the Latin word credo, which simply means... I believe. The creeds of the ancient church were summaries of belief. They didn't carry the same authority as scriptures, but they were expressions of what the scripture taught. They gathered together the threads of what the Bible had to say about the various aspects of the gospel. And so, for the first few hundred years after the death of Jesus, the church faced this problem in that there were all kinds of views all over the place. Has to whether Jesus was God and whether he had a human or divine nature, and people were, you know, splitting hairs over every little wind of doctrine. And so the early church decided, well, let's have a unified expression of what we understand the Bible to teach about Jesus, about salvation, about God, about the way of faith. And so the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed was um, constructed to kind of have a A one, like, let's all work off the same page as God's people. And so the creeds were not designed to replace the Bible. They were just expressions of what the church at that time believed the Bible actually taught. It was their creed. I suppose in one sense, you know, as a fellowship, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, we have a um, statement of fundamental and essential truths. We affectionately call it soffit, right? Statement. A fundamental. Okay, don't worry about it. Anyway, it is kind of, in a sense, um, a, a, an in-house creed for churches, the 1,000 plus churches that are part of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. We've agreed that has an assembly of churches across the country. These are the things we all agree on, that this is what we think the Bible is teaching about God, about the Holy Spirit, about the future, whatever. So a creed is nothing to be afraid of. It is just a formal statement of what it is that we believe. And so that's what you want to put in your blank. A creed is simply a formal statement of beliefs that forms one worldview and guides one's actions. Okay? And so a creed is something we live by, no question. It doesn't carry the same weight as the scripture, but it collects together what we believe the scripture is teaching. And so when Jesus talks about observing all the things that I've commanded, The question is, what was Jesus' big commandment? What was his credo, as it were? And, of course, that's all kind of bound up in uh, Mark chapter 12, and we'll come to that in just a moment. So, um, let's just kind of slow down there for a second before we move on. Are you tracking with me? Is everybody kind of still in the room? Okay. Are you still on the boat? Like, everybody's still on the boat? Anything? Needs clarification? The last blank? uh, It's a formal statement that guides one's actions. Okay. Well, let's start digging in then into what the Bible has to teach about this great commandment that Jesus taught. Because when Jesus said these words that we've become so familiar with from Matthew chapter 12, he was dropping a big rock in the pond. Much bigger than sometimes we appreciate on this side of the cross. He was doing, in giving us this great commandment, he was doing for us what he did in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, you have heard it written, but I say to you. Do you remember that? All the way through the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it written, looking back at the Old Testament law, but then he reframes it. But I say to you, this is what it was pointing at all along. This is what the direction that it was going. Jesus said, I didn't come to replace the law, I came to fulfill the law. So I'm gonna show you where this is all going. And so, um, when he gives us the great commandment, and I'll share it with you in just a second, what he's doing is he's reaching back into the Old Testament, uh, something that was absolutely essential to the identity of God's people, and he is bringing it forward to help God's new covenant people understand, well, what does that mean now? What does that look like now? that Jesus has come. In the Jewish culture in which Jesus lived, people understood about keeping commandments, okay? They had, famously, the Decalogue that Moses brought down from the top of Mount Sinai, so the Ten Commandments that God gave. And somehow, they had managed to massage them into 617 uh, other commandments that sort of explained what the Ten Commandments were all about. There's a sense in which what happened, and they did it for the very best of intentions. They just wanted to make sure people understood how do you walk with a holy God and do it in the everyday business of life. But have you, you know, this may not be the best example, but sometimes if you work too hard to explain a joke, like you lose it all. Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, and there's a sense in which, you know, when you've got 617 little, you know, incendiary laws, Uh, incidental laws, to explain the ten major ones that God wanted us to remember, sometimes some things get lost in translation. Sometimes, you know, law 615 takes on the weight of thou shalt not have any false gods before me. I don't know, by the way, what 615 is, just off the top of my head, but there were 617 commandments that God's people were supposed to keep. So, one day Jesus' teaching... And an expert, right, the Bible tells us, Mark uh, Mark 12, an expert in the law, okay? He knows the Ten Commandments. He knows all 617 additional commandments that kind of explain what the Ten Commandments mean. He is a master of all of these things. Uh, With all of this traffic in his mind, he comes to Jesus, and he says, of all of this stuff, what's the greatest commandment? Honest question, I thought. Pretty fair. When you've got 617 plus 10, you know, sometimes it's hard to keep track of them all. Give me the, the big one and at least, you know, that'll give me a focus for my life. And um, and what Jesus said is really the essence of what Scott McKnight in his book calls the Jesus Creed. It is, and here's what goes in your blank, it is the distilled essence, okay? The distilled essence essence of everything the law and the prophets taught. And so um, now we get to the part that you're familiar with. So when the expert in the law, with all of this stuff in his heart and his mind, was trying to establish, like, what's the one biggie that, you know, is absolutely take-home, non-negotiable of all of these laws? What's the one I really need to hold on to and grab a hold of? And Jesus was gracious enough to give him an answer. He said, The most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So there you go. There's the distilled essence of the Ten Commandments and the 617 that were added later. What was it that was most important to Jesus? What characterizes the heart of God? What drove Jesus' ministry? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you watch Jesus' ministry throughout the New Testament, you will see he embodied this. He didn't just talk about it. This is actually the way he lived. This is how Jesus Loved. He modeled this, love towards God and love towards others, both friends and family and foes. Okay, So he is our great example. We're walking in his foot, uh, footsteps. Now, I said that when Jesus said this to the expert in the law, he was dropping a big rock in the pond. Well, what am I talking about? Okay, so I'm going to give you a wee bit of a history lesson. Just follow along with me. The expert in the law knows that the greatest commandment is bound up in what was known as the Hebrew Shema. And just for your benefit, in case anybody's interested, I've put on each table a copy in Hebrew of the Shema, which is really the Hebrew um, translation of Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 and following. The expert in the law knows the Shema by heart. He knows it by heart because he repeats it every morning when he gets up. He repeats it when he leaves his house. He repeats it throughout the day. He repeats it when he re-enters his house, and he repeats it before he goes to bed. Following the Old Testament pattern, okay? And so what was the Shema to every Old Testament-believing Jewish person? Every devout Jew would recite this scripture morning and evening and many throughout the day. And here it is, um, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And then he kind of goes on to say, not only do you want to embrace this personally, You want to teach this to your children. You want to mark this on your doorposts. You want to wear this on your forehead. I mean, he goes on through a whole list. Don't let this go from... This is going to be the central thing that is going to define God's people. That they love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength. Now, some people say, well, why do they call this the Shema? Okay? S-H-E-M-A. Well, there's a very simple reason, because the Hebrew word Shema means listen, okay? Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel, follow? So, the Shema simply is the Hebrew word for listen, okay? And so, in traditional Jewish practice, these lines from Deuteronomy 4 and 6 were, you know, combined with other passages, and they were prayed in the morning and the evening. It's been one of the most influential traditions in Jewish history, and it functioned both as a Jewish pledge of allegiance to God and a hymn in praise. This is what the people of God are about. Whatever it all else is they do, whether they're artisans, or parents, or physicians, or fishermen, whatever, what defines them were this love for God. And so that is why this became such an important part of their identity as God's people, God's Old Testament people. Now, of course, when God's people loved God with a passion, God blessed them. But we also know that the Old Testament is full of stories when their love grew cold. And they started to love other things more than God. And then, of course, we have the accounts in the scriptures of what happens when things went sideways. But this was still the guiding thing. When Moses brings the people out of Egypt, and in Egypt they identify themselves as slaves, as an an oppressed people, Moses is trying to help them say, no, you are the new liberated people of God, assembled by God himself to make him known on the face of the planet. And we want you to know that you are no longer slaves, but you are sons and daughters of God. And this is your credo, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And so this became something that we, it's repeated today by Jewish people, uh, Jewish believers all over the world. They repeat the Shema. Hero Israel, um, the, 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 um, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, interestingly enough, That's exactly the way Jesus starts what he has to say on the great commandment in Matthew chapter 12. He absolutely is going back to Deuteronomy and pulling it forward into the experience of what he is teaching in terms of teaching the kingdom and the gospel. So this is no mistake on Jesus' part. He knows precisely what he's doing. This central element of... uh, what it meant to be God's people in the Old Testament, he is bringing it forward and reframing it as the centerpiece for God's New Testament people. But he doesn't bring it over exactly the way it was in Deuteronomy. He does some other things. And those other things are what makes what Jesus says in Mark chapter 12 so unique and so distinctive. Okay? So, um, keep in mind that when Moses brings uh, the people of God out of Egypt, he is bringing them into a land that is uh, populated with the worship of gods of every shape description that you can imagine. It's a very polytheistic world. Uh, They leave the gods of Egypt, they move towards Canaan, the Promised Land, and along the way they're running into gods of various different cultural groups all the way along the way. And so... um, This is kind of the world in which they live, and uh, Moses really wants them to make sure they don't forget who they are, that they maintain their loyalty and obedience and love to the one true God as the only way forward to really live in the world as God's people. And so the great threat to Israel's future was Trading in allegiance to Jehovah for the allegiance to the gods of the cultures in which they ran into. And so the Shema became that reminder every single day. We are not like them. We worship the one God. Hero Israel. The Lord is God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your might. You need to understand, too, and again, this is still a little bit of a linguistic lesson, that there is no word in Hebrew that translates directly into what we think of when we use the word obey. There isn't a Hebrew word that directly says what obey says in English. Sometimes when you go to the scriptures and you see the word obey, the word that's actually in behind it is shema. Because in Hebrew, the notion is always listening with an eye to following through. So you never listen just to have sound waves enter your ears. You listen with the notion of doing something about it. And so that word listen, shema, carries a lot more weight. It's not just sort of being there on a Sunday and hearing the message preached. It's stepping out into the parking lot to actually follow through on what you learned in the message. In Hebrew, and here's what goes in the blank, hearing and doing are basically the same thing. Hearing and doing are synonymous. Um, and so, in response to the fact that Jesus or uh, the, uh, God alone is their God, he says, you need to love the Lord your God. If you get that, then do it. And so, uh, it isn't the warm, fuzzy, emotional energy that we feel when we like someone. In the Bible, love is always action. Agape love always translates into something. It does something. Okay? You love someone, you act in loyalty and faithfulness. And it's for Israel, to love meant faithful obedience to the terms of their covenant relationship. And these terms are the laws and commands that will make up the rest of the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Obedience to these laws, even in the Old Testament, is never about legalism or trying to earn God's favor. Though sometimes we see it translated into that when people, uh, God's people get it wrong. Obedience in the Old Testament is about love and listening. If an Israelite loves God, it will make it easier to listen and absorb God's teaching and guidance. And that's why the words listen and love are so tightly connected and repeated through these opening statements in Deuteronomy. Okay. So let's kind of move forward back into Jesus' day. Let's catch back up into Mark chapter 12. So at the time Jesus comes on the scene, he, raised in a Jewish home, Jewish male has probably prayed the Shema two to three to four times a day, every day of his life, once he came of age. So the Shema is as familiar to Jesus as his sandals. I mean, this is just a part of who he is. He is a Jewish person. Uh, He is raised among the Jewish people. And so Jesus totally gets the Shema. He totally understands what Deuteronomy 6 says four and five is all about. He has practiced it. He has prayed it. He has lived it. And so, when asked which command from the Torah was the greatest, he says, this is it. Listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. There's no other testament greater than these. Now, what's the big difference between... What we have in Deuteronomy 4, five and six, and what we have here in Mark chapter 12, 29 to 31, what do you see is the difference between that obviously Jesus is bringing that Old Testament passage forward, but what does he do to it? He adds love for others. He adds love for others. And by the way, love for others is not a new concept, is it? As a matter of fact, if you just turn a few pages back to Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, here's what we read. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay. Do you see what Jesus Christ is doing here? Keep in mind that as we follow through the history of the people of Israel scripturally, that many times they kind of saw themselves as sort of the sum total of everything that God was doing in the world. And so, you know, they were the worshipers of Jehovah. There were insiders and there were outsiders. You could be a Jew, you could be a non-Jew. But if you wanted to follow Jehovah, you had to become a Jew in order to do it. And so there was very much this notion of, you know, we are the people that love God with our heart, soul, and strength. Jesus said, okay, that's good as far as it goes, he's saying to the expert in law, but you didn't quite get the whole story. And so Jesus reaches back and pulls together Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and Leviticus, 19, 17 to 18, and he says, this is the whole story. This is what it's really all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. By the way, he says mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, This is really what the law and the prophets were really all about, it says in in Mark's account of this story. Uh, If you get this, you get it all. I thought, isn't that interesting that Jesus says, wow, if you're going to focus on one thing, if you just want to have some direction and just get a hold of, here's the thing to try to get a hold of. Love God with all you are and love your neighbor the same way you want to be loved yourself. Like, just extend the same love to them. Active love. Now, it's very interesting. We could uh, spend a lot of time going into this and we really don't have that time. But, you know, as Pastor Darren was sharing, do you remember when he was talking about in the book of Revelation, when it talks about they're going to have a mark on their forehead, and so on and so forth, it's actually reaching back here into this Deuteronomy um, uh, passage. Because that's what you're supposed to do with the commandments of God. You're supposed to bind them on their foreheads, put them on the side of your house, and and uh, uh, Jewish people literally found ways to do that. Little boxes, phylacteries on their head, and stuff on their wrist, and... Little boxes on that. I mean, they literally found ways to make that happen, even though I think it was meant to be figuratively, but they found ways to do that. And so there's no question that John, who is the great, um, you know, champion of agape love, according to his letters and towards his gospel, I mean, it's not a surprise that he reaches back for his imagery and revelation to passages like Deuteronomy that explain what it is. To be God's people is to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in Deuteronomy, right, you've got people whose loyalty to Jesus is um, um, demonstrated by the fact that they bear God's mark, right? And then you have people who are not a part of God's people who are marked by something else, another loyalty, something that is evil, not something that is good. Anyway, we could spend a whole morning just kind of diving into all of that imagery. So... What is Jesus Christ doing here? He is reframing the Shema for God's new covenant people for you and me. He's saying, as you read through the Old Testament, look for this, because it's there. Later on, you know, Jesus would say to Cleopas and his wife, her name might have been Maria. We can have fun with that one. Um, He said, listen, I'm going to explain everything that the Old Testament has to say about me. And you sort of figure, well, where did Jesus Christ get mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus sort of seemed to think the whole thing was about him. And so he explained to Cleopas, you know, all the things concerning him from the Old Testament. And so this love command is buried there throughout the Old Testament. It was meant to characterize God's Old Testament people, and it's also meant to characterize God's New Testament people. But now it's not just love for God in marking us out as a distinct people in the world, but it's also love for our neighbors that allows us to export this love into the world in which we live and to make a difference and an impact in ways, as this love spreads out and transforms the lives of not only us, but the other people who are around us. And so the expert in the law wants to nail down what comprises the epicenter of true spirituality. And so in the Jewish mindset, loving God was about following the Torah, keeping the commandments. And Jesus radically opens up in Mark 12, the scope of what that true center of spirituality is all about. He says that loving God is about following him and loving others. He said that's the heart of what it means to be centered in Christ. This is the spiritual formation or growing to be a mature disciple is really all about. Miss this and all of you've got left is religious observance and rule keeping. Okay? Discipleship is about having this vital love relationship with God and exporting that love in our relationships with one another, whether they be friend or family or even foe, and certainly even stranger. Okay, So do you see where Jesus is really dropping a pretty big rock in the pond? He is changing the way we, as God's New Testament people, should understand ourselves. Yes, the Old Testament people were distinct. They were God's chosen people. They were marked by love for God. But God's New Testament people, in whom the Holy Spirit is dwelling, we now have this joint understanding of the love of God, that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we also passionately love our neighbor as ourselves. And there's the challenge of your life and mind, isn't it? We sometimes find it challenging to just really love God with 100% of who we are. I mean, I know that I don't always get there every day. How about you? You know, I have my good days, my bad days. I'm sure you do as well. But I know what the goal is. The goal is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I have this other obligation, too. Jesus refused to separate them. If I love God, according to John in his letters, if I love God, I will love my neighbor. In fact, John even goes so far to say, if I do not love my neighbor, then that suggests and is clear and is evident of the fact that I don't love God. Whoa. First John. If I love God, I will love my neighbor. If I don't love my neighbor, it suggests that my love for God is not what it could be or should be. So, wow, this is a big thing that Jesus Christ is doing here. And trying to understand what this love looks like, it's been the challenge of God's people and all the churches where I've pastored. We've had countless conversations, but what does this look like in shoe leather, like for you and for me? Like how do we actually, you know, embrace what Jesus is saying and actually go with him where he wants to go? And again, that's kind of the challenge of discipleship, following in his footsteps. And we need one another to find our way. That's the way God designed it. It wasn't meant to be just a solo journey, you and God. It was us together as God's people, walking in Jesus' footsteps, loving him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, And together, loving others, even as we love ourselves. We have a personal responsibility in that, but we also have a corporate responsibility to support one another and actually following through on the great commandment. So that's the Jesus Creed. It's just a formal statement of what the Bible teaches, but the biblical expression, if you want to kind of step back, that it's founded on is simply this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments greater than these. This is the distilled essence of New Testament spirituality. Okay, so that is a different topic than the one we're discussing today. Okay, so that's kind of, that's kind of, that's kind of getting your oars in, in a different lake, eh? a different river. But, but bottom line is, in a nutshell... What I think Jesus is trying to say there is we simply don't find our way back to God by ourselves, his sinful, broken human people. We just don't have the capability of doing it all by ourselves. And so the Holy Spirit draws us. He convicts us of sin. He draws us. He, he woos us, as it were, back to this primary relationship with God. And I don't know about you, but I can think of instances where the Holy Spirit was drawing me, was wooing me back in the time that I wasn't serving the Lord with a whole heart. And so he set up various circumstances and various situations and set certain people in my path and had certain people pray for me. And in all these things, God the Father was drawing me, drawing me to that place where I would just finally say, okay, I'm all in. Um, I want to love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself and kind of, you know, give myself to follow in his direction. Okay? Well, we're off to a great start. But it's just a start. Come back next week. And hear what Ross has to say is he starts to try to flesh out what this looks like. Go ahead. So the question is, how does, and obviously Jesus is bringing it forward. He's not saying this is, he's leaving it behind in Deuteronomy. He's bringing it forward into the Gospels. He's saying, what does it mean, you know, here, O oh Israel, the Lord, the, the God is Lord and the Lord is one. What does it mean today? Well, in the day in which Deuteronomy was written, of course, we know that there's lots of different pagan cultures. So there's all kinds of gods. There's Moloch, there's Astaroth, you name it. I mean, every single uh, political group has got its own god. So it's kind of easy to understand that. Moses wanted Israel to know that there isn't a bunch of gods. There's one, and that's the god we serve. That's the god we follow. I would dare say we are still surrounded by idols in the 21st century. They're not necessarily called Astaroth or necessarily called Moloch. They are called sexuality. They are called greed. They are called money. They are called power. They are called popularity. They are called relationship. I mean, the Bible basically points us in the direction that anything that supplants God from the center of your life is an idol. And so we still need to keep in mind that, you know, the Lord God is one. Jesus helped us and put it as starkly as this. He said, you got a choice. God can run your life. Or money can run your life. Can't be both. You're going to have to pick one. So if God runs your life, you're loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. If money runs your life, then you've surrendered to an idol, and something else is taking the primary place of God in the middle of your life. So, you know, even in our day and age, we don't necessarily have to worry about Moloch and Ashtaroth and all of those people that you read about in the Old Testament, but we are still being challenged, in our day, to let something else other than our relationship with God be the center of our lives. And whether it's our business or family or whatever, it can actually become an idol. And so we need to be reminded even in this day that this is a really, you know, unique relationship with us and God. He needs to be forefront. He needs to be at the center. And that's why we talk about helping people to live a Christ-centered life. Other things off the throne, Jesus, and then everything else finds its place in reference to Jesus at the center. Does that help? Okay. Thank you. Great question, by the way. Well, it's 11 o'clock. Let me just have a word of prayer with you. And then I'm hoping that you're intrigued enough that uh, you'll come back and join Ross next week and kind of follow with us this uh, series throughout the summer. If you want to buy a copy of the Jesus Creed, great deal. Pick it up at the bookstore. Uh, Love to have you read through it with us this summer. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day that we've had together. And Lord, one of the biggest challenges of our lives is to be obedient to your commandments. There's just so many distractions, so many things that get us off track. Sometimes our own emotions get in the way. But Lord, in our heart, we want to respond to this great commandment. We really do want to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we pray with uh, the Father in the Gospels, Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief and uh and lord help us to love our neighbor as ourselves the world is getting more and more diverse every single day and cultures we don't understand and people whose values we don't share and we struggle to figure out how do we as the people of god demonstrate this love uh, to a world that so desperately needs to be transformed by it and so lord i pray that you would transform us with your love and that you would make us if i might say it, transformers in the world with the love of jesus Help us to see how each one of us can do that and all of us as a community. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you.